How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein. I'm pleased to be at the New York Historical Society's Robert H. Smith Auditorium with Jill Lepore. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. So uh, for most people, writing a 900-page book on American history (laughs) would take a lifetime and probably wouldn't have time to do anything else. So actually, what made you think about writing a one-volume history of the entire United States? How long did it take you, and did you ever regret doing it while you were working through it? (laughs) I don't think I regretted it. It was an incredible challenge. It was uh, was really fun to write. Actually, it's embarrassing to say. I feel very bad when people have writer's block because I have a problem, I write too much. So it was fun to have uh, an almost infinite task, actually. Um, I decided to write the book because I'd been asked here and there every once in a while, would I join a textbook writing team? Or would I write a single volume on the American Revolution? Or would I write this? And I always thought textbook writing would be depressing. It doesn't really come alive on the page. It has a different objective. Um, And so I was asked to, to, uh, one more time, to write a single volume, single narrator, History of the United States, as a textbook. And I thought, well, I should not say no again. I should, I should take up this invitation to do this work of public service. But I said to my father, you know, I'm happy to do a college edition, but what I really actually want to do first is a, a, a book about all of American history for ordinary people. That I thought that actually the nation needed a, an accessible new history that took into account the incredible revolution of scholarship of the last half century that I don't think has sufficiently broken out of the academy. So in the book, you spend a fair amount of time on prominent women who often are not in the textbooks that I used to read in college and high school, prominently mentioned. Uh, One of the women that you mentioned is a woman that um, has gotten a lot of attention in recent years. Her name was Phyllis Schlafly, a Radcliffe graduate. And she transformed herself into one of the most powerful people in the Republican Party, but also one of the most powerful people fighting the ERA and fighting uh, certain types of abortion uh, that was permitted by the Supreme Court. So why did you spend so much time on her, and why were you so fascinated by her? I just think she's fascinating. Also, she is a hugely important driving force in the realignment of the party system in the middle decades of the 20th century as the, I think, most important kind of field general of the conservative, conservative movement and has been doubly ignored because most, to be frank about it, most academic historical scholarship is written by people with a liberal bent who historically have done a fairly poor job, including conservative thinkers and conservative figures. And the history that's written by conservatives generally is written by men who don't think women have a lot of political power or should, and so they ignore Schlafly. So every, you know, liberal academics ignore her and conservative academics ignore her. She's really important. So... 
She uh, led the effort against the ERA. You point out in your book that the Equal Rights Amendment was actually going through legislatures unanimously for, for quite some time until she began the effort to stop it around the, in the 70s. And do you think it would have passed but for her? or been ratified, I should say? I mean, one of the things that's important about Schlafly, like she begins being a political figure, major political figure in the 1950s as the head of the Republican Women's Club, Federation of Women's Clubs, and she inaugurates what I call, you know, a new political style in American politics, just a sort of an adaptation of something between McCarthyism and Goldwaterism, you know, running, running politics as a moral crusade. And she, she you know, she's, she's behind the Goldwater nomination. She's incredibly instrumental, very Goldwater, the conservative, who wins the Republican nomination in 1964. And then she gets pushed out of the Republican Party by the late 60s, where they're like, what did we do with Goldwater? We need to kind of steer back towards moderates like Nixon. And then... <laughs> And then she reinvents herself as a moral crusader, arguing against ERA, which then becomes a signature issue for the Republican Party, even though ERA was introduced in Congress in 1923, and Republicans supported it, had it on their platform since 1940. The Republicans had always been in support of ERA until Schlafly said, you know what, this is how we will reimagine the party. When our country was started, it's hard to believe now, but women uh, who were married did not have the right to own property. They also obviously couldn't vote. And they also couldn't run for office since they really couldn't vote and they weren't allowed to be office holders. Um, the right to vote, the suffragette movement, which you talk about, it is hard to believe today, but many leading so-called feminists then opposed the right to vote for women. Well, women are like men in that they have a variety of political opinions and political agendas. So, uh, you know, actually, one of the reasons that women didn't get the right to vote for a long time is that men feared women would vote as a block. But it turns out women don't vote as a block at all. When women first began politically agitating, they were fighting for abolition, right? They were, the main thing that women fought for in the 19th century was not the right for women to vote. It was the end of slavery. Uh, it was part of a Christian and evangelical movement that women, women were disproportionately church members, and it was a moral reform movement. Uh, they also fought for temperance. They thought they were fighting for an end to forms of tyranny, especially household tyranny. And those, those things included not have, women not having the right uh, to own property and also not having the, the right to vote. The narrowing of the uh, right, of the struggle for women's rights to the right to vote was actually pretty problematic for the, for the larger movement. In much the same way, if you think about going back to your Schlafly question, the early 1970s, after women lost the ERA, the women's rights movement got incredibly narrowed to a fight for the right to abortion. And all the other things that women had been fighting for became secondary to that, which was a disaster, in my view, for feminism. Now, you begin your book with a discussion about the discovery of this country, quote, discovery, by uh, early settlers. And you talk a lot about Columbus coming over. Um, Columbus has been somebody that has been vilified by some people in recent years because of the way he handled the trips over here and so forth. Do you think he was appropriately vilified or do you think he was more of a hero than he, than he is currently seen by some people? There's a lot that we can learn from and should learn from and that, for instance, teachers and textbook writers need to understand to accommodate uh, that the story of, of the United States begins tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, with migrations of people that we would now call indigenous Americans, and that that story is vitally important to who we are today. And that story, uh, the story of European conquest, is a story of tremendous violence. Right. Uh, that said, uh, it's really interesting that, and it was an interesting and puzzling question for me, where to start 
a history of the United States, right? Like the easiest, straightforward way. So I'm going to start with the Declaration of Independence. That's when the United States begins. Uh, but that doesn't really offer an explanation for like a country that's wrestling with these very problems. Like how are, how is it that we are descended both from European colonizers and from indigenous peoples and from Africans uh, kidnapped from their homes and brought as forced laborers? Like we have to all, I think, accept as a people to be a nation that we're descended from all of these people. Now you point out in your book that uh, when Columbus arrived here, he didn't actually hit North America. He kind of hit the, some islands in the Caribbean. But there were many, many millions of people living here. It wasn't as if there were a few Indians uh, scattered around. There were, what, 10 or 20 million people living in the continent. Is that right? Yeah, there's many more millions than that. I mean, it, 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 you know, it's not wrong. It is a genocide. I mean, the, the European invasion of the Americas is a genocide of, of millions of people. It is a lot of a lot of those deaths are caused by disease, but a lot of that disease is fairly willfully spread in, 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 a, in a quasi knowing way. Um, the acts of violence, the forced enslavement of indigenous peoples, uh, the erasure of the sophistication and diversity of native cultures is, is a legacy whose, whose agony we bear with us still. The reason in the end I decided to begin with Columbus in 1492 and then move backwards to uh, indigenous life earlier was that my, the way I decided to tell the story was actually in large part about how our political arrangements are the product in part of our technologies of communication as much as our ideas. How, what technologies we have available to us to communicate our political ideas is really important to our political arrangements. And it was indeed extremely significant that Columbus could write his diary down and that he could tell the queen and king of Spain that he took possession of these lands and that they, you know, and that he could decide these people have no language just because he didn't understand it. But that, that technology of communication of writing is hugely important in that, in that historical moment. And we can see it differently and understand the power dynamics differently if we pay attention to technology. When I was in grade school, I remember people saying, well, Columbus went to discover a new route to the east, but it wasn't clear that the world was round and he was maybe risking falling off the globe um, because it wasn't clear where the ocean ended. That wasn't the case. Everybody knew the world was round. He was just looking for a cheaper way to get to Asia. Is that more or less right? Yeah, but he was also a former slave trader. I mean, he wasn't just the kind of seeker of knowledge. Uh, he was a person who was engaged in a particular. So I like to cite him as the first private equity investor, really, because <laughs> he had a deal with Queen Isabella. He got 5% of the gold and 10% of the profits, but there was no gold and no profits, so in the end, he didn't really make any money out of it. Why did he not get the country named after him? It's called the United States of America. Why did we use the America? Why didn't he get the billing rights there? Well, let me just actually kind of take seriously your private equity argument, because there is a really important interpretation to offer with regard to the European conquest of the Americas, which is that it actually makes possible the emergence of capitalism because of the vast wealth that Europeans extract from the natural resources and the forced enslavement, the forced labor of Native peoples and of Africans, and bring to Europe, which consolidates wealth in such a way that makes possible the emergence of capitalism. So in a larger systemic way, kind of setting aside Columbus and his whatever, how we want to think about Columbus, uh, in, a, in a much larger scale of economic history, it is a really important development in the history of economics. In terms of the, the naming, that, that story largely has to do with Amerigo Vespucci, who uh, wrote a book called Novus Mundus uh, after his voyage to what is now, came to be called Brazil. Um, Vespucci was a Florentine 
explorer, and he was the first European to call these lands, which no one really understood in Europe what they were, where they really were, to call them the New World. And that was very compelling to a European map maker, a German map maker named Martin Waldseemuller. When he went to make a map in 1507, he didn't know anything really about Columbus, but he had read America Vespucci's book, The New World, which had been widely translated. And he, on the map, called just an honor to Vespucci, called this blob of land America. The original sin of this country was slavery. When did slavery really start? Because the English uh, colonial um, people who came over to colonize here, the English uh, Puritans and others that came over, they weren't slave owners at the time. How did slavery get started here in this country? Many of the English, in fact, were. They didn't bring enslaved people with them to New England. Many of them had already uh, made voyages to, or had family that had made voyages to the Caribbean okay. and had uh, slave plantations in places like Barbados and Jamaica. The Atlantic trade in slaves is dates to the middle of the 15th century and, and had its origins in Portugal and Portugal and Spain engaging, especially Portugal, in, in raids of people along the West African coast, which happened before Columbus made his voyage. It's just one of these terrible accidents of history that this new trade and people from West Africa was uh, just beginning to churn when um, Portugal and Spain began uh, founding colonies. So when the colonies were established, we ultimately had 13 colonies. Um, they were minding their own business. And then after the French and Indian Wars, the uh, British said, well, you need to pay for some of the protection we've given you. And they began to impose taxes. And that didn't seem to work out uh, to the satisfaction of the colonial leaders. But do you think that the British could have prevented a revolution from occurring but had they done so, would it have made a difference because eventually the United States would have broken away? We now think about there were 13 colonies, but really there were 26 because there were the 13 colonies in the Caribbean, which nobody really distinguished in any meaningful way. From the vantage of London, those are the colonies, all, all of them. They were more profitable the, for England. The, the, the Caribbean colonies are the ones England really wanted to keep because the Caribbean colonies, which were these just brutal death camps uh, for Africans, where the sugar plantations were, uh, was where England was making its most money off the colonies. The English colonists in the 13 mainland colonies, when they were protesting Parliament, and the sh first the sugar tax and the, and, the, and the stamp tax, and then late, later the, the taxes in the 1770s, they kept trying to recruit, recruit the colonial assemblies in Barbados and Jamaica. Like, all right, we're sending a petition to Parliament complaining about this tax. Are you with us? Right. <laughs> and the Caribbean, you know, these slave-owning plantation owners would say, you know, the thing is, we really like the British Army, and we really need the British Army's protection because we are outnumbered by our enslaved property 30 to 1 here. So um, you guys go off and rebel against these people, but we actually need the British Army. Like, the, you know, the Bostonians like, we got to get the, where the red coats and the lobster backs. The Caribbean goes like, no, actually, we, no, we, we really we want the power of the British Empire behind us. And that was Britain's strategy, because why keep these kind of sad colonies when there's all the riches are in the Caribbean? Your title of your book, it really relates to uh, the Declaration of Independence. Can you explain the title and the inconsistency between these truths and the reality? So, you know, of course, we all know Jefferson famous for it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I chose these truths as the title for my book because uh, something that we, I don't think, reckon with fully as citizens as much as we, certainly as often or as, as deeply as we need to, that an obligation of, 
of being a citizen in a democracy is the act of inquiry. Right. The, Jefferson also says in the Declaration of Independence, let facts, let these facts be submitted to a candid world. Uh, the document is essentially a product of the Enlightenment and its its passion, its passion for empirical observation and research and experiment. The nation, this nation is an experiment. This is the statement of, uh, of of our obligation to participate in the experiment and to be keen observers of the results. But it is also an experiment that uh, it has been fraught from the start, from long before the start. Even where Jefferson got those ideas, I think, is quite fraught. And it is our obligation as historians, and I think as citizens who have an obligation to think about the relationship between the past and the present, to reckon with whether the nation has lived up to the promise of the Declaration of Independence. Now, um, when he wrote the Declaration, it was approved by the Second Continental Congress, but they edited a lot of it, and he didn't really like the changes. But at the time, the most important part was not the preamble, which is the part that is the most famous sentence now, probably in English language. It was the sins of King George and so forth. But why is it that the preamble is now perhaps the most famous sentence in the English language? What does it stand for as it become the creed of our country though it really didn't live up to the creed. When Jefferson talked about equality, uh, that all men are created equal, he was talking in a very narrow political sense about the equality of property educated men. Why that preamble has become uh, ubiquitous and why it is cherished is not because of what Jefferson meant when he wrote it, but because of the work that black abolitionists did in the 1820s and 1830s to reinterpret those words. So, that's 1776. Go ahead, 50 years. It's going to be the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It's a new nation. Let's have some part. Let's like have celebrations. We'll have July 4th parades. We'll have the jubilee of the Declaration of Independence. Well, among other things that happens to be going on in the 1820s is a religious revival, an evangelical religious revival. Uh, many, many Americans are born again, including many free blacks in the North uh, who are born again. And the attraction to them of evangelical Christianity is the spiritual equality of all people in the eyes of God, male or female, black or white. Uh, we are all equal before God. And they, uh, through preaching and writing, and especially some incredibly powerful abolitionist tracts, but a lot of preaching, black abolitionists in the North reinterpret the, we, we, the equality of the Declaration of Independence as a universal equality of all people. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Well, then we can't have slavery. And it becomes the manifesto for the abolitionist movement. That's the Declaration of Independence that we cherish. Now, when Abraham Lincoln gave his Gettysburg Address, he was, in effect, referring to the Declaration of Independence um, preamble. And he was, in effect, saying that all white and all black people should be equal. Is that right? Right. That's what, I mean, people know about the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858 when they're both running for a Senate seat in Illinois. Douglas, Stephen Douglas says, well, the thing is, the Declaration of Independence was never meant to include black people. And this is a white man's government for white man and white men's posterity forever, Douglas says. And Lincoln says, no. Like, show me where in these documents it says this is a white man's government. And Lincoln has largely gotten that argument from Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist and, and who had been born into slavery and had run away. Because uh, Douglass had, had been part of that movement to reinterpret the Declaration of Independence. And Lincoln constitutionalizes that. I mean, that's what the struggle of the Civil War is over, but it, it becomes the new constitutional truth of the nation. So uh, you have actually uh, written uh, your history all the way through the President Trump period. So why don't we cover uh, some of the president's and, and some of the social effects 
of their leadership from the modern era. So take President Kennedy. He only served about a thousand uh, days in office. Do you think he has left a legacy that we still have, or do you think he's largely been forgotten by people because of so many things that have happened in technology and social movements since then? You know, everybody leaves a legacy. I think the most significant moment in Kennedy's presidency was the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, he, he, he does, he gets credit for saving the world from nuclear war. How, how many people can you say that about? Um, I, I remember some years ago, I took two of my kids to the Kennedy Library and Museum. It's just beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, an incredible set of exhibits. But I remember going into the room uh, that was about his relationship with Bobby Kennedy, who was, of course, his attorney general. And then, you know, you know what's going to happen to both of them. And I remember afterwards, like, having lunch with my sons and saying, you know, just what do you make of that story? Like, does it make you want to go into public service? And they said exactly the opposite. Like, what it, what it communicated to them, which is a tragedy of the library, not what the library intended, um, was that there's no winning. There's no making the world better by running for office. Um, so, so this is a deeply cynical thing to say, but I think... Kennedy, who was cherished at the time as an idealist in some ways, uh, and in the immediate aftermath of his death certainly was, um, actually is a kind of buoy in the water signaling the end of idealism. So many people would say post-World War II, the best foreign policy decision the United States has made was probably the Marshall Plan, though there may be others who have a different view, but maybe the opening to China would be the uh, second most important, let's say. But the, the worst foreign policy decisions, some would say, were... Vietnam and the invasion of Iraq. How do you compare the impact on society of Vietnam and the impact on society of Iraq and our standing in the world? You know, the work of the great military historian Andrew Basevich is really important. Here he writes about uh, the collapse of the distance between civilian and military life uh, in the United States in the sense that as a kind of popular culture, we value militarism, uh, but we don't actually value military service, nor do we require it. Uh, and that, you know, Eisenhower, of course, famously said that he feared for the nation when someone who had not served in, you know, had not seen combat occupied the office. Uh, and our worst military decisions have been made by people who never saw military service. I think the, uh, you know, the turn to all an all-volunteer military is a, a good part of what is responsible for the forever wars uh, of, of the end of the 20th century. Uh, a legacy of Vietnam was the end of the draft, but the end of the draft worsened American foreign policy. So technology has become an important part of our life in the last 10, 20 years or so, maybe even more so than the previous 50 or 60 years. How do you think technology is changing the American character, if at all, and our presence in the world? I think you can make, and I have made the argument that the realignment of the party system, which has happened seven times in American history, has always coincided with the technological innovation. So uh, the, the invention of the penny press in the 1820s and 1830s makes possible the, the democratization of American politics and the rise of Andrew Jackson, the founding of the Democratic Party. Uh, the radio makes possible the New Deal. Uh, television makes possible the emergence of the modern conservative movement. So we can think about the effects of cable television, uh, talk radio, and the internet kind of all at once, starting in the, in the 1980s. I think they're kind of best understood as a bundle. Um, it's easy to get distracted with kind of from the founding of Facebook and social media to the present, just in the last decade or so. But I think kind of talk radio, uh, cable news, 
and the internet and social media are all kind of one big glom together disequilibrium machine politically. Now, some professional historians would say you really can't be a real historian if writing about something that's happening now or within the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. You might need 30 or 40 years to see the documents. But um, let's have fun and talk about the history of uh, the impact on, in American history of the Obama administration and the Trump administration so far. So on the Obama administration, what would you say its greatest impact on American history has been or is likely to be seen in the future? So when I began my, I had my big outline to write the book, I planned to end on Obama's inauguration because um, the great ending and also because historians are quite reticent to write about the reason. How do we know anything about the last 10 right. or 15 years? Um, and then I, after Trump's election, I decided I needed to go forward to Trump's election. It's such a significant political moment. Um, weirdly, and this, this will seem to undermine the importance of Obama's eight years in office, the most important legacy of Obama's presidency was his election. Uh, the election itself, um, the fact of the triumph over uh, centuries of racial prejudice and division, uh, that this nation could elect uh, a, a person of color president was an incredible moment that uh, just completely shakes up the whole historical narrative. What I about the Trump administration? The Trump what administration. <laughs> hard to say. Also hard to say in a fully broad-minded and nonpartisan way. Um, what we would say looking back 50 years from now has to do with where this goes, right? People would say to me, oh my gosh, I read your book and, and so explained everything about Trump to me. Like I, I finally, I read all thousand pages, but got to the night, I knew exactly why Trump was elected. And I said, well, that's pretty interesting because I wrote most of it thinking that he wasn't gonna get elected. Like I wrote almost a whole book <laughs> before that election. So that's just your imagination. Like we tend to imagine that things are gonna, like go where they're gonna, where they're gonna go. Um, at the moment, it does seem to be uh, that the legacy of this administration and this cultural moment is our contemporary epistemological crisis. That it is very difficult for people to know how to know things. Everybody knows how to not know things. You're biased, I don't believe you, you're lying, but it's very difficult to know how to know things and that our larger structures of epistemological authority are in crisis. That's not because of Trump, but then again, I'm not the person that believes the president determines everything. What is your next book gonna be? I'm writing a book about an early data science company that claimed credit for getting Kennedy elected in 1960. I think of it as the Cambridge Analytica of the Cold War. Okay. I'd like to thank you very much for an interesting conversation, and I highly recommend to anybody here buying thank this you. book. Thank you. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.